The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. All right, well, this morning we are starting a new uh, book study. Uh, we're going to start walking through the book of Philippians together. And I am uh, really excited to do that because the book of Philippians is all about joy. And so for the next several weeks, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. What is joy and what that looks like. Uh, but before we do, let's kind of get a little bit of background. First of all, Paul is writing to the Philippian church. Uh, he's writing under house arrest in Rome. Uh, obviously, we know Paul faced a lot of persecution, a lot of struggle. Uh, he, he, was, he, went, he endured a lot of things in life. He went through a lot of stuff. And he's writing to the church at Philippi who also had some struggle. They faced some persecution. They faced uh, the danger of false teachers. And there's a lot of struggle there as well. Uh, it wasn't an easy road for them. Yet through all the struggle, Philippians is known as the book of joy. When you read the book of Philippians, you can just sense the joy in Paul's heart. Um, before we get going too far, though, I think it's important that we take a minute to delineate happiness from joy. Those are not the same thing. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. We had uh, an awesome week uh, at Disney last week, and Disney is supposed to be the happiest place on earth, right? If you've ever been to Disney, that's, that's kind of what they promote, to be the happiest place on, on earth. In fact, their sole focus is facilitating happiness, and they're, they're, they're nuts about it. Like every little detail they, they focus on making sure that you, the person there, escape reality and enter this world of complete blissful happiness. And uh, they, they even pump smells into certain areas uh, to make you have this emotional response of joy and happiness. We walked by this little Christmas store and all of a sudden it smelled like Christmas out in the streets and I'm like, where is that coming from? That smells awesome. It was like cinnamon and all these Christmas smells. And look over and there's this Christmas store and they're pumping that stuff out. Uh, it's unbelievable how attentive to detail they are to generate this emotion of happiness. And so while you're there, everyone is, is happy, happy, happy. They're, they're just loving life. They're, they're living their best life. And, uh, and so we, we had a good time, and our kids were, were in that world. They're, they're in this fantasy land. They've escaped reality, and they are living in this just world of happiness until we went to the bug's life uh, thing. And so the whole time we're there, Davis is having a hard time, like, trying to figure out, is, is this real? Like, in every ride that we went to this, we went on this one ride where it, like, it feels like you're going into space. And he's like, are we in space? It's like, nobody, we're not in space. This is just a, like a movie to make you feel like you're in space. And so the whole time we're in Disney, he's struggling differentiating reality from fiction. Like, he, he doesn't, he's like, I don't know what's going on. And, and so we get into this Bugs Life thing. And if you've ever been to Disney and been to the Bugs Life, you know what this is kind of like. It's one of those 4D movies. You sit down and they have like things that like the air blows on you and like bugs run underneath. It feels like bugs run behind you and stuff. And so early on in the show, they're introducing different bugs. And they introduce this one bug that supposedly is some kind of acid bug. And then all of a sudden he sprays you with his acid, which is just water from the little nozzle in front of you, and Davis loses his mind. 
in Bugs' life. I mean, he, he goes from total blissful happiness outside with Bugs, with, uh, not Bugs Bunny, with uh, Mickey Mouse. We go inside the room. He gets sprayed with fake acid in his face, and he thinks that he is dying. He, I don't want to die. Like, he's screaming. It's so embarrassing. I'm like, this, he's a little too old to act like this, like grow up a little bit. But he is freaking out because he, he legitimately thinks he just got acid on his face. I'm like, it's not burning you. You can tell it's not burning you, obviously. It's just water. He's like, it does burn. It's acid. He's losing his mind. One minute, he's in total blissful happiness. The next, total devastation. And, and, and here's the reality this morning. Happiness is not enough. Happiness is not enough. It's too easily swayed by circumstance, right? You can be happy with Mickey Mouse outside. You walk into a room, you get sprayed with fake acid, and immediately all happiness is gone out the window, right? Happiness ebbs and flows like that, right? The problem with living for happiness is that happiness can't endure through the unpleasant circumstances in life. Think of it this way. You go buy a new truck, and any man in the room is like, yes, that's a pleasant experience, right? And, and for several days, that will bring happiness. Every time you get in, you smell that new car smell. You're like, oh, and just immediately you're happy, right? But as soon as you back into the trash can, all the happiness goes away, right? That literally happened to me. When I, when I graduated high school, I went and bought a brand new truck. And just a few days later, I backed it into the garbage can and dented the back fender all up. And immediately all the newness wore off because it was all dented up. But unfortunately... This is what people are living for today. We are a society that is chasing towards happiness. This is why our divorce rate is so high. This is why credit card debt is astronomical. This is why we have more comforts than ever, but more depression than ever. Because we are a society that lives for chasing happiness. This is why we have people masquerading as Christian authors, telling the masses to focus on self-care because you have to care for yourself before you care for others. Listen, that's not biblical. You find, me, find that for me in the Bible and then we can have a discussion. It's not in the Bible. The Bible is about laying down self. Happiness is not enough. Happiness is a counterfeit of joy. Happiness is a counterfeit of joy. And Philippians is all about joy. Joy is more powerful than circumstance. It supersedes our negative experiences. So even if you have a horrible week, which sometimes that happens, right? Even if your week is just miserable, joy allows you to rise above those circumstances and still be joyful through life. Why? Because it's a divine product of the Holy Spirit and the heart of every believer. Joy is a product of the Holy Spirit living in you. It's a divine trait that we're given by the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit in our life. So, where did Paul's joy come from? How did he endure the trials of life and yet remain so steadfast in joy? How did Paul, under house arrest and all the things that he went through, he was beaten and he was, all this stuff that he went through, how did, in the midst of all that, did he still pen this thing with complete joy? How did he do that? The answer is, it's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel gives us joy and allows us to go through all of the circumstances of life and not be affected by those circumstances because we have the power of the gospel. The Holy Spirit lives in us. So that's where we're going to be at in our text this morning. We're starting in verse 1 of Philippians 1. Here's what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as we normally do, we're going to spend some time walking through those 11 verses together this morning. So the first thing we see Paul talking about is the source of salvation. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, is kind of an introduction to the letter. He says, grace to you and peace from, our, uh, from God our Father and the Lord Christ Jesus. So the Sunday before we left to Disney, Piper told me she had seen the baptisms that day, and uh, she's been asking questions for weeks about uh, salvation and, and all that stuff. And, and she says, Daddy, I want to get saved. And so my immediate response was, you want to get saved? Saved from what? What do you want to get saved from? Because I have a fear that as my kids grow up and they start asking questions and they surrender their life to Christ, that if they, when they do that at a young age, I'm worried that one day when they get older, they may not understand and they may not have truly surrendered. There's all this confusion, and I've seen it so many times as a student pastor. There's just a lot of confusion, and, and, and they get older, and they don't truly understand the gospel. So I ask my kids lots of questions when they start uh, asking about salvation. So save from what, right? The salvation that we're offered is unbelievable. The salvation that we're given from Christ is unbelievable. And I think sometimes we, we get so used to like church words that we kind of just become a little bit apathetic to them. I think it's good for sometimes for us just to kind of take a moment and focus our mind on what that really means. Like, what does it really mean to be saved? What does it really mean that we're saved? We, we, we talk about, man, I'm saved, you're saved, we're saved. What does that mean? Romans 5, 6 through 11 says this. For a while we were still helpless. If you have a Bible and a pen, highlight that word. While we were still helpless. Nothing you could do to fix the situation. You were helpless. It says at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. You're the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. It's a rare thing for someone to die for a good person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, even though that we were rebelling against God, Christ died for us. He laid his life down for you. He laid his life down for me. Even though you were sinners, rebelling against him, running away from him, he laid his life down for you. How much more than since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from what? From wrath. We've been saved from the wrath of God. That is what, that's what this is all about. You rebelled against God 
and what you deserved was the wrath of God for eternity. But because of the grace and mercy of God, he opened a way for reconciliation. It says, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So what have you been saved from? You've been saved from eternally being placed under the wrath of God, which is what you deserved. We were helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies, destined for wrath, not a place, not a place you want to be. That's the direction we were headed based on our own choices. A lot of people ask the question, how could a good God send people to hell? Going to hell is a choice that you make. Because a choice to reject God now is a choice to reject God in eternity. You choose to reject God now, you choose to not live for him and surrender your life to him now, then you've made that decision for eternity. But because of grace, peace with God was made possible. Not because of your own doing, it was a gift from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For you are saved by what? Grace. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's not like you woke up one day and was like, man, I want to make the good decision right now. No, God made that in your heart. The Holy Spirit came and quickened your heart and made you alive and aware of the gospel. And then you were able to surrender to it. Not because of your own doing. It was a gift of God. Not from works so that no one can boast. Salvation is not of your own doing. It is a gift. We're saved from our own rejection of God and the inevitable path that that rejection leads to, which is the wrath of God in hell. But the source of our salvation is God and God alone. That's the point that Paul is making here. He chose to save us even while we were still sinners. Paul talks about the source of our salvation, but he also talks about being convinced of salvation. Let's go on. The text says this. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this. Highlight that that phrase. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul is certain that the Philippians will endure to the end, right? He's saying, I'm, I'm convinced of this, that the, 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 the Jesus who began a good work in you will, will complete that into the end. Why does Paul even mention enduring? Why is that important? Why is it important that he mentions that? Because enduring is a sign of genuine salvation. Enduring is a sign of genuine salvation. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. In verse 12, he says, because lawlessness, because rebellion will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying, look, lawlessness is going to multiply. That's no surprise to us today in 2021, right? Most people that you encounter have no desire to surrender themselves to God. 
right? They want to live by their own understanding, by their own desires. They want to live by the flesh. They could care nothing about living for God. It's all about what they want and how they feel about things. This is the culture and the society that we live in. It's no surprise to us that lawlessness will continue to multiply. And because of that, the love of many will grow cold. The love of God will, go, will grow cold. People will stop loving God. Nobody will have any desire to love God. Again, prevalent in our culture, no surprise to us. But here's what it says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those who endure are the real deal. Those are the ones that are really surrendered to Jesus. It's not that our enduring earns us a place in God's family. Remember, we've already talked about the fact that salvation is by grace alone, not of works. Jesus is saying that if we have truly been made new through the power of the spirit of the living God, we will endure. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're truly saved, you will endure to the end. You will continue to serve him, continue to live for him all the way to the end because you are filled with God's spirit. So what Paul is saying is he's convinced of the Philippians' salvation. He's, he's convinced that they're the real deal. That's what he's saying. Why is he so certain of this? He says because they're passionate about the advancement of the gospel. He says, it's right for me to think of you this way, right? The Philippians understood how important gospel advancement was, and they supported Paul in two different ways, right? One, in gospel partnership. Life is easier when you know you got somebody in your corner, right? It'll live on mission easier when you know you've got someone who's got your back. Uh, We've got... A couple that joined our church a few months ago, Scott and Deborah Gidry, they're not here today, they're working, uh, but Scott is an encourager, and he texts me pretty much once a week, just this encouraging text message of, hey bud, you're preaching, I got your back, I'm for you, I'm with you, keep on keeping on. Almost every week he sends me some text message that's some way uh, worded that way, and that's when in my sales. I'm like, all right, yeah, let's go. Let's keep on going, right? It makes me feel like I'm, 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 we're, we're in this together. I'm not standing up here by myself. We're all in this together. We're all working towards the same thing. We're all working towards the cause of Christ. And to know that there are people in your corner is something that is encouraging. And Paul's saying, hey, you, the Philippian church, it's nice to know that you're in my corner, that you got my back, that you have the same focus and the same priority in life, that we're all in this together. That's what he is thankful for. The Philippians were in Paul's corner. Whether Paul was free to preach the gospel or if he was in prison and chained for living out his faith, the Philippians supported Paul and the gospel ministry. They were not ashamed of the gospel or the, or the work that Paul was doing. It'd be easy to, when Paul gets arrested and chained up, for them to be like, okay, let's kind of separate ourselves from that dude. I don't want to get in trouble. We'll just kind of go over here and do our own thing, right? It would have been easy for them to do that, but that's not what they did. They dug their heels in deeper and they supported him even more. They saw the importance of supporting gospel ministry. They prayed for him and remembered him as he continued to advance the cause of Christ. And we know from chapter four, which we'll study in several weeks, that they supported him financially. They sent him money to encourage him. It's not that they were rich. They were not rich. They were very not wealthy, but they supported him financially. And we have multiple ministries that we partner with all over the world as a church. Multiple ministries that we support all over the world. And it's important, it's very important 
that we have a personal connection with these people and we let them know, hey, we know that you're in some random part of the world and that's a difficult mission that God has given you, but we're with you. We support you. We're praying for you. We want to send you money so you can continue to advance the gospel. This is an important ministry that we should do here in Nederland, Texas, that we support missionaries all over the world. If we're not doing that, we're missing the boat. Paul's saying, hey man, I need this. I need someone in my corner and these guys who are giving it all up to go in the bush of Sudan or go into some place in India or in the Middle East or where they're at. There's people all over the world that are proclaiming the gospel. We should support that. We should be with them in that. We should be thinking of them. How often do we think about missionaries on the, on the field? We go throughout our day, we go throughout our week, and rarely probably do we think about the fact that there are people all over the world proclaiming the gospel. They need us to think about them. They need us to pray for them. They need us to support them financially. And we have opportunities for that here at Fellowship. Our tithes and offerings, we, don't, we give that, but then we go above that to our mission giving, and we give to missionaries all over the world. You can have a personal connection. That's why we do it that way, so that you can have a personal connection with a missionary. You can send your money specifically to them. All the missionary people that we support, you say, hey, I want to support the missionary projects that we support as a church, and your money goes straight to them. We don't keep any of that. We send it straight to them so that they can continue to advance the gospel. You can have a part in that. You can have a part in that. And it's important that we as a church do that. This is how the Philippians, this is how they were with the gospel. They were passionate. So they supported him uh, in partnership, but also they were passionate about gospel defense and confirmation. I always enjoy watching the way uh, Becca loves our kids. We have four kids and, uh, and it's crazy at times, but it's evident that, that Becca loves our kids. And, and I can see how she loves our kids in two ways. One, if you mess with them, she will kill you. She will cut you. And all of the, the fluffy, lovey Jesus stuff might go out the window if you try to hurt one of our kids. Just, I mean, just where she's at in her sanctification right now. It's just where she's at. And then... If you've ever followed her Facebook, anytime any accomplishment that they make, she's going to proclaim that to the world, right? She's going to be like, hey, look what they did. Look what they, look what they accomplished. Look at this grade that they made. Look how they did this. She tells the world about it, right? Because she's passionate about our kids. She loves them. So she defends them and she confirms them over and over and over and over and over again. This is how the Philippians were with the gospel. They defended the gospel against false teaching. There's a lot of false teaching trying to infiltrate the church early on. And this was no, uh, no different for the Philippian church. But the Philippians were able to discern the false teaching and they took a stand against it. They, they saw it as a priority that, that the true gospel was preached in their church. They were not willing to let any false teacher come in and start to proclaim something that was different from the gospel that they had been given from Jesus. This is not a priority today. It's just not. Most people don't care about what churches are teaching. All they care about is the programs and is the music good? Do they have a cool show? People literally pick their churches based on programs and music style. That's crazy. Because that's idolatry. Do you get that? If your worship is about your experience, then the object of your worship is you. 
right? If you pick what church you go to based on how you feel about it and your experience, then you are worshiping yourself because this is not about you. It's important that you understand that. This is not about you. This is about him. And we come together based on that truth and that reality. And we proclaim his goodness together. And that is what this is all about. It's about him. It's about worshiping him. It's not about how we enjoy it or if we, if we like the music style or if we don't like the music style. That doesn't matter because it's not about you. You're not the object of worship. He's the object of worship. People are picking their churches based on their experiences and they don't care about sound theology. They will go to some church that's preaching garbage just so that they can feel good, just so that they can enjoy the experience. That's not what this is all about. So is your worship about your experience? Is sound theology something that's important to you? Do you care more about truth than experience? You should. That's what Paul's commending the Philippians for. He says, hey, I can tell that you are truly saved because you are defending the truth. You actually care about truth. Not only that, but they were confirming the true gospel. They worked to keep out the false gospel, but they also labored to confirm and proclaim a true gospel. Paul was confident in the Philippian salvation because they were passionate about the gospel. They supported gospel ministry, they defended truth, and they proclaimed truth. If we're really saved, if Jesus is really Lord, then we will obey him. Right? We, we studied that when we were in 1 John. 1 John 2, 3, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. We know if you're truly saved, the fruit of that is obedience. The fruit of true salvation is obedience. Obedience is evidence of salvation. Well, what did Jesus say? Mark 16, 15. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. What did Jesus tell us to do? He said, go preach the gospel. That's the command that we've been given. And if we're truly saved, then we'll be passionate about preaching the gospel. We'll be passionate about telling others about the goodness of grace and mercy. We're really saved, we won't be apathetic towards the gospel. It won't be something we keep to ourselves. We'll do what Jesus told us to do. We'll be passionate about gospel proclamation. And just as a plug, today you have that opportunity. At three o'clock today, we're gonna meet back here in the offices and we're gonna go out together to the laundromats around this area and we're going to proclaim the gospel. And for a lot of us, I know that fear is a reservation for that. We're like, "Ah, I just don't like talking to people I don't know, I'm scared of that. This is a great opportunity because You're there, there's accountability. You get people there to kind of walk you through the process. It's a great opportunity. And even if you don't go and maybe you're not confident to actually talk to anyone, at least you're there, you're taking a step towards obedience. Start taking steps towards obedience. Today is a great opportunity for that. 3 p.m. Paul saw this passion for the gospel in the Philippian church and because of that, he was confident that they were genuinely saved and would endure to the end. He saw that there was a genuine salvation in them and he was confident that it would endure. Then he talks about the product of salvation. He says, for God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And he prays this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with
I read this article the other day that the pedestrian crossing buttons, sometimes those don't do anything. Did you know that? Sometimes they just put those there just as like a placebo to make you feel like it's going faster. Like New York City literally admitted to this. This is what the article is about. New York City admitted to the fact that their buttons in the city, they don't do anything. They say they do something, right? Push, for, push to walk across. But they're literally, the button's not attached to anything. It's just a button. And, and, and so you sit there. They're on a timer. So you press the button, and there's really absolutely no reason to press the button at all. But in your mind, you're like, I should press the button because it says to press the button, right? And so people all over New York pressing buttons for no reason, right? It's crazy. Also read that the door close button in the elevator, that's fake too. It does work, but you have to have the key in it and be the operator to actually make it work. So when you're like, all right, well, the door's taking forever, let me hit it. It's just plus it doesn't do anything. It's, it says it's a door close button, but it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually do anything. A lot of people are the same way with their faith. They profess to be real, right? The button professes to be a real button that helps you walk across the crosswalk, but, but they're, not, they're not the real deal. They profess to be real, but they don't produce any kind of real result. If our faith doesn't produce works, our faith isn't real. If your faith doesn't produce works, your faith isn't real. James teaches us this in James 2, verse 17. It says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. James says, unless our faith actually produces something in us, it's not real. This is the point Paul is making to the Philippians. He's confident that they're really saved because of their passion for the gospel. He also sees other fruit in their lives and asks God to continue to grow this fruit in the Philippians. So what fruit does Paul pray Paul pray for. First, he says that they would continue growing in love. He asked God to grow the Philippians in love. Love for what? Love for God. As we are sanctified by the Spirit, our love for God will only increase. Your love for God should be continually and growing and increasing. Matthew uh, 22, 37 says, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. We know that this is the most important part of following after God is that you love God with your whole being. What does it mean to love God with your heart? It means you love him with your emotion and your desire. Love God with your will, your motives, your passions, your affections. Love God with your heart it means you genuinely are passionate about God. Right? It's one thing to say that you're passionate about God. It's another thing to genuinely be passionate about God. Right? That your heart's affections are stirred for God. As we sing and we gather together and we proclaim the goodness of God, are your affections stirred for God? To love God with your soul means to love God with your being. Love God with how you talk, what you do with your hands, how do you utilize your talents, how you react to challenges. Loving God with your soul means loving God with your entire being, all of who you are. Living as though the purpose of your existence is to display that you love God. And then loving God with your mind, this is a weird one, to equate with love. We don't typically talk about loving with our minds, right? I haven't heard any like 80s love ballad that talks about loving with your mind, right? We talk about falling into love like, like it's this accidental thing, like I just tripped and fell into love, right? That's not, that's not what love is, right? Real love is intentional. It's an act of the will. You choose love based on your knowledge of the object of your love. 
right? If your love is based off of the emotion that you just trip into love, then what happens when he doesn't put his clothes in the dirty hamper, right? All that love goes away and you want to kick him in the face, right? Or what happens when she doesn't squeeze the toothpaste to the end? You're not happy, right? I'm going to leave that one alone. All right. Real love is intentional. It's a choice. It's an act of the will. To love God with our minds is to hold him in high esteem, to think about him with reverence and with adoration. Loving God with our minds is the product of a greater knowledge of God, which is the next area of growth he talks about. He says, growing in knowledge and discernment. A greater knowledge of God leads to a greater love for God. The more you know God, the more you love God. This is why it's so important that we spend time in the word. You need to crave it. You need to crave time in God's word because that's how you get to know who God is. We should crave to know God more. We should crave to know who he is. First Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Right? We know babies crave milk. When you put that bottle in their face, if it's been a little bit longer than the time that they're used to, what do they do? They're like, right? They start freaking out, like start breathing heavily and hyperventilating like, like they haven't eaten in days, right? They crave that milk. That's how we should be with the word. We need to crave the word of God because that's how we gain understanding about God that enables us to be able to discern truth, which leads to the next area of growth, growing in spiritual focus. A greater understanding of God leads to a greater love for God, which leads to a greater focus on God. If God is the object of our affections, he will be what we focus on. Over the years, I've had to go to different conferences and different things for church work. I've been to a preaching conference. I've been to other church conferences, tons and tons of conferences. And when I go, typically Becca can't go because she has a job and they don't just let her go anytime uh, she wants to. So she teaches, and so when I go, she's stuck at home with all the kids, and I go to these conferences. Well, while I'm there, I often have a hard time focusing on what they're talking about or what's going on in the conference because I'm constantly thinking about how I want to be back with her. I want to be home. I want to, I want to be with her. And, and while I'm there, I'm thinking about if we go to a restaurant, I'm like, well, Becca might would like this restaurant, or she would like this thing that this guy said, and I'm constantly thinking about her. My focus is not on the conference. My focus is on the object of my affections. Does that make sense? If I love God, then my focus will be on God. It won't be on all the circumstances of life. My focus will be on God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about not letting circumstances cause us to fear. I said then that Paul's secret was a laser focus on what really matters. Here's that same theme again. He says, so that you may approve what is superior. So that you may approve what is superior. So many things are warring for our attention and worship. There's so many things in this life that are trying to draw us away from Christ, draw us away from the things that really matter, draw our focus away from God. That's, that's the world that we live in. You've got things to worry about at your work. You've got things to worry about with your family. You've got kids' sports on the weekend. You've got all this stuff that's drawing you away, drawing your focus away from the things of God. And our focus as believers should be on the object of our affections. What do we love? If we love God, our focus will be on God. It won't be on all of those other things. It will be on God. What really matters? It's our futures in heaven. That's why Paul says what he does in chapter 3 of Philippians. He says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. We don't live for the here and now. This life does not matter. 
In fact, this life is so short in the grand scheme of eternity that if we live for this life, we are fools. This is not what this, our lives should be expended on. We should expend our lives on the future and the glory in heaven that we're going to receive. That should be our focus. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I pursue as my goal. I pursue my life. I focus myself on the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's focus was on. That was his secret. He endured all this crazy stuff because his focus was on what really mattered, not on the circumstances of life. He wasn't worried about his kid's sports game on Saturday. He was focused on preaching the gospel. He was focused on living for the glory of God. That was what his focus was on. James 4.14 Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Your life is just like that. It feels like yesterday that I was a sophomore in high school. You just went to Disney. When I was a sophomore in high school, we went to Disney. Stephen for some reason, felt it important to mention that that was 20 years ago. I don't know why he wants to be a jerk. 20 years ago, just like that, it's gone. Your life is short. If you're living for this life, you're wasting it. If your focus is on the here and the now, you're expending it on things that don't matter. Live for what is superior. Live for the prize promised by God's heavenly call. Live your life here for your future in heaven. And here's the final point that Paul makes. He talks about the growth, that growth is the fruit of righteousness. He says, may uh, be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This growth that we're talking about, that Paul's been talking about, is the fruit of righteousness. You are not pure and blameless in your own efforts. Just ask your spouse. Right? You're not pure and blameless in your own efforts. You are a flawed person, a sinful being. But the blood of Christ enables the righteousness of Christ to be imputed on you. So that when the Father looks down, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see all of your faults. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. The evidence of this, the evidence that this is real, is the sanctification by the Spirit. If, if you've truly had that imputed righteousness from Christ and the Father sees you, then the Holy Spirit lives in you and you're going to be growing in your walk with Christ, in your faith. You're going to be a Christian who continuously grows. If your life looks exactly the same today as the day that you got saved, there's something wrong. You should be growing in these areas. That is fruit of salvation. The fact that God's spirit is moving in and through you is evidence that you are truly saved. This process brings glory and praise to God. That's what Paul says. A greater knowledge of God leads to a greater love for God, which leads to a greater focus to live for God. This is sanctification. The more you come to know about God, the more you love him, the more you focus on him, this is what sanctification looks like. And this process brings glory to God. This is the product of true salvation. This is what Paul is praying for the Philippian church. This is what our staff prays for you. That you would be sanctified by the spirit of the living God. That God's spirit would move in you and through you 
building up these things in your life that make you look more and more and more like Christ. Because if that's true about you, then we can be confident, like Paul was about the Philippians, we can be confident that you truly know God, that you've truly been saved from the wrath of God. This is what we long for for you. This is what we long for for ourselves. That God's Spirit will continue to move in us and through us and move in you and through you. And we as a church, we as a body, will continue down this path of sanctification, growing in the Lord, growing in relationship with Him, so that we can be used by Him to reach others for Him. Because of this, we can have joy. Because of this gospel, because of this process of sanctification, we can have joy, not happiness. Happiness is bleh. It just comes and goes. Who cares? There's no point in chasing after that. We can have joy. That even when we hear that, 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 that cancer diagnosis, or even when uh, we, we have this financial crisis, or even when something bad happens in our life, we can overcome those circumstances because we have joy. Joy is the product of our salvation, real, genuine salvation. A salvation that is evidenced by our passion and zeal for the gospel and the process of sanctification, knowing God more, loving God more, and focusing on God more. So many people are just enduring life. So many people are just living the rat race. They're just enduring life. Take it one day at a time, no joy. They're living for those few mountaintop moments of happiness. They're unhappy and they think, well, maybe a new car will help. Or they think, I'm unhappy, maybe a new spouse will help. Or I'm unhappy, maybe a new career will help. Or I'm unhappy, maybe a glass of wine will help. Or I'm unhappy, maybe more kids will help. I mean, just all these things that we think, man, if I just have these different circumstances in life, then I would be happy. Stop chasing that. There's, There's no fulfillment in that. It's an endless, endless pursuit because it comes and it goes. It's always fleeting. Happiness shouldn't be the goal. Aim for joy. Aim for joy. It's only found in true salvation. It's only found in knowing and communing with God. So the question this morning is, do you have joy? Do you have joy? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Do you have a passion for gospel advancement? Are you growing in knowledge of God, love for God, and focus on God? Would you stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? I've said this multiple times over the past several Sundays, but it's true that we live in this Bible belt of Southeast Texas. Where you ask anybody if they're saved and they're gonna say, yeah, man, I'm, I'm saved. I've given my life, I believe in Jesus. I've given my life to Jesus. I believe in my Jesus and believe in Jesus. But it seems like rarely is there any fruit with those claims. They claim to be one thing, but they're like that button in New York where it just, it just proclaims to be something, but it doesn't have any fruit to back it up. If that's true about you, I'm not asking if you've ever said a prayer. I'm not asking if you've ever been baptized. I'm not asking if you've ever come down because you can do all of those things and not truly be saved. You can pray a prayer 
and not truly be saved. You can, you can walk down an aisle and get baptized and not truly be saved. That water doesn't do anything. It's just water that we pump in from the city. We always tell people that baptism is like a wedding ring. That it's, it's an outward expression. But I can go to the jewelry store and buy a wedding ring and put it on my finger and it means nothing. It has to be backed up with the commitment that I made to my wife 15 years ago. I wear a wedding ring because of a commitment that I made in my heart 15 years ago. Because I want to proclaim to the world that, that my heart is hers. But the wedding ring in and of itself means nothing. So baptism in and of itself means nothing. Walking in aisle and saying prayer at a VBS when you're a kid means nothing if it's not backed up with a true surrender in your heart for Christ. And so this morning, what I'm asking you is not, have you ever filled out a card? My, my question is, have you ever truly surrendered your life to Christ? Have you ever truly surrendered your life to Jesus? Because he alone can give this life that we're talking about. He alone can give you this joy. You can pursue happiness for your entire life and your entire life will be wasted chasing those ebbs and those flows of life. But Jesus comes and he says, let me give you something that's so much more, so much more substantial. Let me give you joy. So my question this morning is, do you have that joy? Is that evidenced by your passion and your zeal for the gospel? Do you really genuinely want other people to come to know Christ? Are you proclaiming it? Are you supporting gospel ministry? Is it evidenced by sanctification in your life? Is the Holy Spirit moving in your life and causing you to have a greater knowledge of God, a greater love for God, and a greater focus on God? Are you living like the rest of the world? Is there a difference? There has to be a difference or it's not real. The gospel is too powerful for it to come in and have no effect in your life. That's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches comes into your heart, if the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, He is so powerful that He makes you into a new creation. That's what the Bible teaches. So if that's never happened for you, then this morning, my prayer, my hope for you is that you would surrender your life to Christ. That you would give yourself to Him fully. You would surrender to Him. Not living for your own understanding, your own world, but living for Him. Sacrifice yourself for Him. Lay yourself at this altar and say, Jesus, I am aware of my sin. Please forgive me of my sin. Please become the Lord of my life. I surrender myself to you. And this morning, if you've never done that and truly meant it in your heart, there's no evidence of that in your life. And please, this morning, I beseech you, I beg you to surrender your life to Jesus. In a moment, the band's going to sing. There's going to be an opportunity. There's going to be people standing down here in front, and they would love, love an opportunity to have that conversation with them. Maybe the light thing is too freaky for you. You don't want to walk down front. That's cool. Shoot us an email. Give us a call at the office. Make an appointment. Come find me after church. We're always hanging around, talking for forever. Come find us. We'd love to have a conversation with you about this. This morning, if you know that you've surrendered your life to Christ, but maybe, maybe you've waned off that path a little bit, there's altars down here. There's always forgiveness. It's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus always offers forgiveness. So come down to these altars. Repent of that sin. Focus yourself on God. God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for grace and mercy. We thank you for who you are. God, I pray that, that this morning we would focus ourselves on you. 
that if anyone here doesn't truly know you, if they're in their hearts, there's any question about it, God, I pray that they would be willing to come down and have a conversation or at least be willing to come and find us afterwards and send an email or Facebook message or some way get in touch with us so we can have that conversation. God, I pray that you would move in this moment, speak to our hearts, that your will would be done above all else and that you would be glorified above all else. And it's your name we pray. Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.